0: Good morning. Welcome back uh, to the second panel on today's forum. Um, my name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato, and it's my pleasure to host and moderate today's second panel, exploring the costs and benefits of preventive war against Iran. Before I get off, uh, however, the subject of from our first panel, I do have one housekeeping note, uh, and that is that uh, Flint Leverett has a paper available on the Century Foundation's website that discusses in a bit more detail his uh, proposal for a grand bargain and for, for uh, kind of operationalizing what he said. So if you were intrigued by what uh, Flint had to say in the first panel, you might check out the Century Fund website um, and uh, get a little more detail there. Um, the second panel today is to uh, explore the options facing the United States in the event that any of the proactive policies explored during the first panel ultimately fail to convince Iran to forego a nuclear weapons program. And, and really there are ultimately, when you, when you boil it all down, there are really only two choices if our other uh, policy options fail, either preventive war or deterrence. So the question is which of those clearly undesirable policies would yield the least bad result for the United States, and, and that's the best we can say of them. Uh, the least bad. And my colleague, Justin Logan, who's the organizer of today's event, has really assembled a, a terrific group of experts to explore these questions, and I commend him. And, and my role here is really to introduce them and, and to sit down. <laughs> so let me introduce all four of them to you, uh, and, um, and then we'll begin. Our first speaker today is Thomas McInerney, a fellow at the Iran Policy Committee. General McInerney served for 35 years as a pilot Commander and Strategic Planner in the U.S. Air Force, earning the rank of Lieutenant General. He retired from military service as Assistant Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force and Director of the Defense Performance Review. General McInerney is a founder of Government Reform Through Technology, a consulting firm that works with high-tech companies. Uh, prior to this, he was the Chief Executive Officer and President of Business Executives for National Security and National Nonpartisan Organization of Business and Professional Leaders General McInerney graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, earned a master's degree in in international relations from George Washington University. He also attended the Armed Forces Staff College and the National War College. Our second speaker is Lawrence J. Korb, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress and a Senior Advisor to the Center for Defense Information. Prior to joining the center, he was a senior fellow and director of national security studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Korb served as assistant secretary of defense for manpower, reserve affairs, installations, and logistics from 1981 through 1985. For his service in that position, he was awarded the Defense Department's uh, Medal for Distinguished Public Service. Dr. Korb served on active duty for four years as a naval flight officer and retired from the Naval Reserve with the rank of captain. Our third speaker today is Michael Eisenstadt, who is a senior fellow and director of the Washington Institute for Military and Security Studies Program at the Military and Security <laughs> Studies Program at Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He has published articles and monographs on U.S. strategy in the Middle East, regional security, nonconventional proliferation in the Near East and Southwest Asia and the armed forces of Iraq, Iran, Syria, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. Prior to joining the Institute in 1989, uh, Mr. Eisenstadt worked as a civilian military analyst with the U.S. Army. He is a reserve officer in the U.S. Army, serving on active duty uh, in 2001 and 2002 at U.S. CENTCOM headquarters and on the joint staff during Operation Enduring Freedom and the planning for Operation Iraqi Freedom. He subsequently served as an advisor to the State Department's Future of Iraq Defense Policy Working Group. He completed his master's degree in Arab Studies at Georgetown University and has traveled widely in the Middle East. Our fourth and final speaker is my colleague, Justin Logan, a foreign policy analyst here at Cato. He's the author most recently of the Cato Policy Analysis, The Bottom Line on Iran, The Cost and Benefits of Preventive War versus Deterrence, which is available outside. In addition to his recent work on Iran, Justin has published scholarly articles on a number of other foreign policy topics, uh, from foreign relations theory and international policy to U.S.-China policy, um, pol- from a number of polyca- uh, uh, prestigious publications, including Orbis, Foreign Service Journal, Reason, the American Prospect, a number of popular magazines as well. Uh, and has served, he has served as a foreign affairs uh, commentator on broadcast media, has appeared on BBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and many o- other outlets. He uh, studied international relations and international economics at American University. So, without any further uh, ado, General McNair. <clears throat> <laughs>
1: I, I Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> can you all hear me back there? Um, frankly, I, I apologize, but I missed the morning session. But uh, all I can say is my personal opinion. Uh, Our Iranian policy today is doomed to failure unless we change it. Uh, The fact is, is I will quote uh, President Ahmadinejad on the 26th of October, 2005, by the grace of God, soon there will be a world without the United States and Zionists. I'm sure you've heard people quote this uh, numerous times today. Uh, I know exactly what he means. You may think you know what he means. Uh, Some of you are double dippers here you're the united states citizens and you're zionists uh, the fact is is we're all uh, in his crosshairs and i take him very seriously i don't think it's frivolous talk now i will discuss uh, military course of action which i believe is quite good and it's very important for the nation uh... it's not preventative war versus deterrence it's somewhere in between it is an air power dominant uh... option Uh, followed up by covert action to remove the mullahs and let the iranian people have their country back again Uh, i could argue for covert action only uh, but unfortunately that's not as exciting and as interesting and as a former airman uh, i do think we ought to kick this off uh, quite properly now first i think we need to form a coalition of the willing Uh, there appears to be efforts going on in that direction Uh, to prevent the Shia crescent from sweeping across uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Some will join, some will not, but I would start out with Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, the Gulf states, Kuwait, Oman, uh, some U.K., perhaps France, uh, but they always, you've got to at least give them the option. Uh, They'll screw it up if they get in anyhow. Um, Now, some will stay with us, some won't. But you give them an option and say, look, this is a very serious threat. My timeline is we have less than a year. And uh, then because the way the stars align, et cetera, elections, Ahmadinejad's tenure in office, etc., uh, we have to make a decision within a year. And then I would work very aggressively with uh, Iranian in and outside of uh, Iran to uh, build this uh, covert action. Uh, But for the coalition of the willing, you've got to give them an off-ramp. You say, we're going to try this diplomatically. We're not optimistic, but we'll go with you. And then you've got to come with us on the off-ramp. Some will come, some will not. Uh, But I think they know what the consequences are of a a Shia-dominated Arabian Peninsula. Now, Iran is very ripe for aggressive covert action. Uh, 51% Persian, 24% Azari, 10% Kur- Kurds, 6% uh, Gauchi, 4% Lor, uh, 4% Mazrin, 2.4% uh, uh, Turkoman, 2% Arab, and the rest are cats and dogs. I think that's 98-some percent. Uh, 70% of the population is less than 30 years, 20% plus unemployment. Uh, Last year, there were 4,300 demonstrations. Uh, On mid-April in Tabriz, uh, 100,000 people uh, protested and burned over 200 government buildings. On the 1st of May, uh, 200,000 protested in Tehran. Uh, Ahmadinejad thought they were coming out to support his nuclear effort. They were really protesting health care, education, and the... Uh, bus driver strike. As you know, they cut the uh, head of the uh, labor union for the bus drivers. They cut his tongue off. Um, So he's not as articulate anymore. Uh, But that's what we're faced with. So we can go through this, but I believe we have a very short and finite time to execute this action. Now, the military forces I would uh, form to have uh, somewhere... Uh, between a 24- and a 48-hour air campaign would be three carrier battle groups uh, plus the supporting aircraft. Uh, That's about 108 uh, F-18s and 50-plus cruise missiles plus uh, EA-6Bs with ICAP-3 capability, which is the jamming capability. Very sophisticated. It's the best we've got. The Air Force would have a wing of uh, F-15E-72, 144 F-16s, 24 B-1s, 24 B-52s, with uh, all with cruise missiles uh, on the uh, bombers, on the stealth because the primary attack will be a stealth attack. Of 15 B-2s, 32 F-117s, and 32 F-22s, be the first opportunity to commit the F-22 in combat with AWACS, Joint Stars, EC-130s, tankers, drones uh, to include Global Hawk Predators, in the supporting activities. And the allies, whatever allies we can get, number one, their bases are very important to us, Uh, and they can do it uh, very covertly as they have done in the past, and they may contribute uh, some aircraft, uh, but their total aircraft is not the important thing. It's just their contribution and their involvement, understanding the serious nature of this. What are the objectives? My objectives are to delay and neutralize their nuclear capability. There are a lot of targets out there. You're not going to get them all. You don't need to get them all. That's not important to get them all, is to get a significant amount that delays them and sends a signal. But to do that, you've got to eliminate their air force and neutralize their uh, integrated air defense system. Uh, you, in addition, uh, would destroy as many of the Shahab 3s as we can and uh, neutralize their command control as well as their naval forces. This means that this is about 1,500 aim points with precision weapons. Some will be, and I can go through it in detail, I won't with you now, which are the heavy bunker busters, and hopefully by then we'll have the 28,000-pound penetrator as well as our 5,000-pound penetrators, Mm -hmm. our 2,000-pound penetrators, et cetera. Uh, When you kick off this air campaign, in short, it's the same time you initiate your covert action. And when you initiate the covert action, I would use the role model that we used in Afghanistan. Small number of special ops. As you remember, we only had 10 A-teams. That's 100 people with the indigenous forces that were a little better equipped. Uh, But the fact is, using air power precision intermixed with those covert forces and those forces in Afghanistan, it was quite successful. Uh, In conclusion... I believe the military campaign has risks, but these risks are far better than nuclear weapons in our cities. And that is the alternative. If you don't believe that, you're still in denial. And the fact is you can't wait until they come to our cities and Israel cities and some European cities. That is their objective. They're very articulate about it. And I believe that we have to remove the Mullahs and let the Iranian people take their country back. Thanks very much.
2: When it comes to uh, trying to figure out what to do if our uh, Iran policy fails, I'm reminded of the uh, story of the very religious man who, before he went to meet his maker, decided that he wanted to see the Grand Canyon. So he went out there and got on a donkey to take him down to the bottom of the uh, canyon. Uh, Unfortunately, on the way down, the donkey lost his footing, and the poor man began to fall head over heels toward the bottom of the canyon. Fortunately, he reached out and grabbed onto a branch, and as you might expect, he began to pray. Pretty soon, a voice came down from on high, and it said, son, do you have faith? He said, oh, yes, I have faith. And the voice said, let go of the branch. He thought for a second, and he said, is there anybody else up there I can talk to? All right, now, if you're talking about, I assume the assumption would be our Iran policy uh, fails, if in fact it hasn't already failed, and uh, they uh, develop either nuclear weapons or the capability to make them, well, what do you do? What you do is what we've always done when rogue nations have gotten uh, nuclear weapons. You live with it. Back in the 1960s, Mao Zedong, who ran China, unlike Ahmadinejad, who does not run Iran any more than Hatami, the liberal before him, ran the place. Mao Zedong said something, and I'm paraphrasing, as, hey, bring it on. Uh, You want a nuclear exchange? We don't mind. We'll lose a couple hundred million people. We'll still have a billion. How many will you have? And people talked in the White House about taking him out. And at one point, President uh, Johnson asked General LeMay, the Air Force Chief of Staff, well, if you go in and bomb them, will you get them all? He said, no. He said, well, what will you do then? He said, well, go back in again. Well, fortunately, we didn't take that advice, and within seven years, Richard Nixon was in China dealing with with Mao Mao Zedong. So deterrence still works. One of the problems we have is that after September 11th, people thought – You know, all of the history of the international system and all the lessons we learned were completely thrown out the window. In fact, deterrence and containment still work. We now know they were working against Saddam Hussein. In fact, we knew it ahead of time because General Zini, who was the head of the Central Command, told us that – told the president uh president that but for that's a whole other panel you want to get into in <laughs> terms of uh of of what uh, of what happened now <clears throat> i think in in terms of your overall policy there are a couple of things you can do we got to get out of iraq the longer we stay in iraq the more powerful and the more influential iran becomes in that region if we get out of Iraq, one of the things you'll break up is this alliance between Iran and Syria. Because uh, if, in fact, we're in Iraq, <coughs> out of Iraq, Syria, uh, Syria's Sunnis, and uh, uh, Iran is, uh, is, is, is Shias. And they're going to have to focus on dealing uh, with, uh, with that area, and the countries are going to have to come together. And I think that the Iraq study group was absolutely right. If we're not there, then it's a regional problem, and they're all going to, have to, have, to <clears throat> have to deal with it. But we don't leave the region completely. We did a plan up at the Center for American Progress over a year ago called Strategic Redeployment. I noticed the, the study group mentioned it. You leave forces in Kuwait. You have an expeditionary force, marine expeditionary force, and a carrier battle group uh, in the Persian Gulf to do what the political scientists call offshore balancing. And that, now, you don't take the military option off the table. Obviously, you keep them thinking about it. I think people many times uh, will say, you know, military, you know, the military uh, option is the last resort. No, it shouldn't be the only resort or the first, but you should not take it off the table. And they have to know that if, in fact, they did anything that would directly impact our our interest in terms of uh, the nuclear weapons, if they have them, that they would pay a very heavy price. And don't forget, even if they get a couple... The United States has five thousand seven hundred strategic nuclear weapons, and so they would have to pay a very, very <clears throat> heavy price. The next thing is do is you don't want to over overreact to it. I think where people get themselves in trouble, the president said, "We will not let North Korea have nuclear weapons. okay, they get them now what do you do? The worst thing you can do is you make a threat and you don't follow it uh, through. You can say we would like the, not them. Iran and North Korea to have them. They will pay a price in terms of their access to the uh, world's uh, uh, markets. Those are the type of things that you can can talk about. But when you say we will not let you have them, then you better do something. And if you don't, that makes it uh, even worse. And why else do you want to be patient? They have terrible economic problems. Uh, General mentioned, you know, the the, the, the youth population. They're going to have to solve them. The worst thing we can do is to go in there covertly, bombing or whatever. That will unite the population against us. The people in Iran remember that when they had a democracy in the 50s, we overthrew it and gave them some 25 years for the tender mercies of the Shah. Now, many times Americans don't pay as much attention to history, but people in that part of the world uh, certainly do. The other thing, and I think the Iraq study group was right, we need to get more involved in the Israel-Palestinian situation. This is the first administration uh, in recent memory, the one I was in, in the Reagan administration, where you did not have an active involvement uh, in the situation between Israel and and Palestine. I think we ought to offer to reestablish diplomatic relations with them okay if they don't take it that's fine the burden is is uh, on uh, on them and i think jim baker had it well and say hey you invite them to get involved in the the, rec- the talks in the region if they don't show up then they're the ones that are suffering and they can't can't be blaming uh, be blaming us like nixon went to china And, you know, when Nixon went to China, it was the end, the waning days of a cultural revolution in China. So, again, in terms of uh, things that were happening, it was a much, much greater uh, uh, impact. And then, finally, I think what we need to do is we as a country need to lead by example. We're telling other countries you can't get nuclear weapons because we say – you don't, uh, uh, you, you know, you shouldn't have them because of the character of the regime. And yet again, there we are talking about developing new nuclear nuclear weapons. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we're using against Iran and North Korea, says not only should we not be developing new nuclear weapons, we're supposed to be cutting down the number that we have. And then the final thing I would do is I take the advice of General Gene Habinger, who was a recent head. Of the strategic command, the one in charge of all the nuclear weapons, and says we are to unilaterally go down to 1,000 strategic nuclear weapons, 600 operational, 400 in reserve, and that would set the example for the world in terms of trying to cut down the number of nuclear weapons. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Good morning, everybody. Um, I'll have to say, um, in all my years of looking at the Middle East and looking at military and security-related issues in the region, assessing the relative merits and drawbacks of prevention versus a policy of deterrence and containment has been the most complex and difficult problem that I've dealt with. In terms of how I would characterize the challenges and risks of each, I would say the course of action of prevention entails high risk inherently because effectively you're going to war, or in the case of Iran, I think it would be correct to say that we've been engaged in a low-intensity war with the regime there for more than a generation. And would be by this action, we'd be dramatically expanding the global war on terrorism. And we would be going to war for an uncertain outcome. And we would have to also um, conclude that this war would likely result in the deaths. It would, it would take the form of, of, of terrorism, um, a, a global terrorism campaign um, <coughs> that I believe the regime in Tehran would respond with, and this would uh, likely result in the deaths of hundreds or perhaps even in the low thousands of people. On the other hand, with regard to a policy of deterrence and containment, should we adapt that policy or should we be backed into that policy de facto by default? we would be incurring uncertain risks for an uncertain outcome. But I think it has to be mentioned that the potential impact of failure could be devastating. And we're talking about the deaths potentially of tens or hundreds of thousands or even more people. Now in terms of prevention and and, and looking more closely at the particular challenges and risks of this course of action, first of all, first and foremost, is intelligence. Accurate, detailed intelligence is a sin qua non of effective preventive action. And the problem is we look back at the performance of our intelligence community with regard to weapons of mass destruction intelligence over the last decade or so. It's It's a mixed bag, we have to admit, but overall I think the picture is not very encouraging. There have been some successes with regard to North Korea, for instance, in 1993, Libya in 2003, but I think the failures... Are um, even uh, loom even larger, and I just will mention Iraq, WMD in Iraq, and also just um, our, our our lack of knowledge of the Iranian program until 2002, uh, when uh, we were rudely surprised to find out um, that uh, Iran had a um, centrifuge program since the mid 1980s. Second, there's the whole issue of timing. Now, it's it's there's there's actually several timelines here. There's timelines related to the intelligence picture. Is the intelligence picture getting better or worse with the passage of time? And to be honest with you, without access to the intelligence, I, I can't tell you what's the case. Although, again, um, as a result of Iran's decision to limit the access of IEA inspectors starting January, February of year of this year, uh, when they announced that they would no longer adhere to the um, provisions of the additional protocol, at least the IEA's ability to... Uh, if look, find out what's going on on the ground is is much diminished, and that probably has had an impact on our intelligence picture. With regard to facilities, I think it's a mixed bag. Some facilities are practically empty now, such as Natanz, and it would be, it would be really, there's no point in bombing a facility which is, is, is partly you know, empty. Likewise with, or, or, or just, you know, kind of in the early phases of construction, and likewise with the heavy water reactor at, at Iraq. On the other hand, Um, If you're talking about the uh, factories that are producing components for for the centrifuges, well, you can't hit those too early because they're already up and running and producing centrifuges which could potentially contribute to a clandestine program. And then finally, there's the issue of personnel. In, in some way, in, in many ways, personnel are the backbone of the program. Remember we said in Iraq, even after the Iraqi weapons programs were dismantled by the mid-'90s, they still had the, the manpower pool and the ability to rebuild their program. You want to be able to neutralize these people either by encouraging emigration or there's more nefarious means. The bottom line, though, with regard to personnel, again, um, the earlier the better because the more time passes, the more they develop expertise and share expertise among each other and perhaps share expertise with um, uh, scientists from foreign countries as well. Uh, weaponeering, the weaponeering challenge. Um, I, I think there's been a lot of um, loose talk about we don't have the ability to destroy the targets without you know, resorting to nuclear uh, penetrator weapons. The bottom line is we don't know. You, you can't really, without knowing the, the classified performance parameters of our penetrator weapons and without knowing the, the geology yeah, and the characteristics of the cement used in the burster slabs on the, on the facilities and like we, we really don't know um, I would just say that there are probably are solutions, there are probably kinetic solutions and non-kinetic solutions for damaging or destroying the facilities uh, and leave it at that um, I'm, I'm not impressed with a lot of the uh, open source analysis about you know, the, the difficulty of hitting uh, a lot of these targets, um, so if you, know, if you know where they are, we, there's, I think there's a good chance we could get at them there's the politics of this issue. Um, the, the, um, the practice in recent decades has been for the president to get a uh, joint resolution from, from Congress authorizing him, him as commander-in-chief to use military force before using force. Now, not every time because, remember, uh, President Clinton hit the um, facility um, the suspected CW facility in, in Sudan and, 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 and targets relate to Bin Laden without congressional authorization. Um, on the other hand, though, for major war, I think this is the practice. And the problem is now I think the Bush administration, you know, faces major problems in this regard simply because um, if they act without um, congressional authorization, um, there will be, an, out, there'll, there'll be a, an uproar in the aftermath. And, and this is really preventive action is only the first step um, um, in, in what is likely to be a protracted war, and he will need the support of the American people for this. Um, and if you go to Congress, it's not clear he'll get the authorization. And then finally, how to measure success? I agree with General McInerney that it's it's in in the terms of delay, as much delay as possible. And again, that's a major unknown um, in terms of how uh, much how much we can succeed there. Deter and contain. Um, first of all, you know, there's a you know, there's – I think in, in, in popular debate, there's a, uh, a debate over the rationality of the, of the regime of the mullahs there. And to me, that's not, that's not the issue. Because if you look at their behavior over the past, um, you know, two decades or so, except for the early days in the revolution when the country was really swept up with revol- revolutionary fervor, toward the end of the Iran-Iraq war and then afterwards, they've generally um, acted in a risk-averse – generally acted in a risk-averse way. Um, which indicates an ability to calculate risk and an aversion to uh, risk. I think the biggest problem really is, A, factionalism within the regime, which often results in policy zigzags, which makes it very difficult to establish a stable, deterrent relationship with such a country. The potential for miscalculation, especially now in the aftermath of Iraq, with the self-confidence we see that uh, coming out of Tehran, And the potential for for, uh, that overconfidence might result in miscalculation, much as I think um, the kind of miscalculation that led to the Cargill crisis between India and Pakistan um, in 1999, when Pakistan um, thought they could get away with a land grab in in Kashmir, the risks. Um, Deriving from Iran's involvement in terrorism is another concern with regard to deterrence. And again, I would use another analogy from India and Pakistan when there was an attack on the Indian parliament in December 2001 by a group that had – that was at the time operating and based in Pakistan. And I'm not saying that the Pakistanis – um, as a matter of policies, you know, sponsored this attack, because there's no indication that was the case. But the fact is that a group based in Pakistan attacked the Indian parliament, led to a crisis between the two countries, which could have escalated to conventional and then nuclear war. And I, I'm worried because of Iran's involvement in terrorism that this is a problem. And then the, the potential for political instability, that um, if Iran was to acquire nuclear weapons, uh, you know, you have, there are, there, I, I think there can be no doubt that there is, Um, The long-term trends in the country um, point in the direction of democratic pressure towards political change. It may take peaceful forms, and we can't rule out the possibility that it will take violent forms. And what might happen to nuclear weapons um, if, if um, there was uh, widespread domestic unrest in the country or if the regime members, certain members of the regime thought that the country was going down the tubes or the regime was going down the tubes, how might they strike out at perceived external enemies who might, maybe they believe are behind this unrest? And that's another thing that I worry about. I'll just close up here um, with just a few comments. Basically, in order to lay the basis for a policy of deterrence and, um, uh, and containment, we have to have both elements of deterrence by denial and punishment in our policy. By denial, we have to focus on um, enhancing our ability to deal with um, Iran's ability to deliver nuclear weapons, such as by bolstering missile defenses, um, bolstering our ability to detect and interdict non-traditional delivery means, such as – a nuke on a a boat, like a a thou that you you see plying the waters of the um, Persian Gulf. And, you know, we might want to think about setting up a a network of radiation monitors throughout the Gulf. In fact, the Defense Science Board actually recommended this, a global network of radiation monitors, a few years ago to deal with this threat. Um, We also have to be able to counter Iran's conventional threat uh, capabilities, mainly in in the naval arena, develop attribution capabilities to uh, prevent the potential for covert delivery and the defense threat reduction agency has a program in this in this regard and we, we need to you know go forward with that at full, full speed ahead um, and then deny, uh, then deterrence by punishment the regime has to understand that if they do use nuclear weapons the the, the the survival of members of the government the stability of the regime the economy and perhaps even the society will be held at risk and here I, I think it's very important to make it clear to the, uh, the regime that, um, you know, just as they, you know, the president talks about. Um, Israel disappearing from the pages of history it's also possible that if they were to use nuclear weapons that the Islamic Republic would disappear from the pages of history again we have to to convey this message with a light touch because again at a time that we're trying to devalue nuclear weapons as an instrument of uh, foreign policy I think it's better not to be heavy handed in this regard and make very blatant nuclear threats but I think they'll understand the message just as Tariq Aziz understood the message conveyed to him by James Baker in their meeting in, in January of uh, 1991, when um, the same kind of message was conveyed in a very um, oblique manner. In conclusion, I would just say that, um, I, you know, I would agree that prevention needs to be kept on the table, although I, I'm not sure that it has as much uh, po- policy utility, as I would have hoped, simply because I think there are people in the regime in Tehran who would welcome a limited preventive strike for, you know, especially Ahmadinejad and and his followers might see this as the best way to kind of revive the revolutionary fervor that they see flagging in their society at this time. And I'm not sure it really has much of a beneficial impact on energizing diplomacy, but I, I still think it needs to be kept on the table because you never know what kind of impact it might have on the domestic debate in Iran. And then finally, um, I think deterrence and containment is likely to be the default option that we'll back into. We have to be, um, be taking steps now, which we are, to build up a, uh, the basis for a deterrence and containment regime. But I also have to say we'll need a lot of luck in order to um, ensure that a deterrence and containment regime works. Thank you.
4: was uh, an excellent presentation, a hard act to follow, so hopefully I can, uh, I can live up to the standards set by our previous presenters. I want to do my best at uh, sort of tying all this up because I think we've covered a lot of ground, not just on the first panel, but on this panel as well. Uh, but in a strange way, I want to bring things back to the beginning, I think, or what should be the beginning of the discussion here, which is the question of why the mullahs in Iran act the way that they do. Uh, No doubt, there's some question of ideology or some combination of ideology and realpolitik. But the argument about irrationality on a fundamental level is thrown around so commonly, and people like Bernard Lewis have taken to making statements like he did in the Wall Street Journal that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad might, maybe, sort of initiate Armageddon on August 22nd. That I think we need to take a step back and ask the ask the fundamental question: Are the mullahs deterrable, or are they uh, crazy? And I think it's strange that we have to have this debate because it's all in a way about proving negatives. Can I prove to you that the mullahs will not act in a given way in the future? No. No more than anyone can prove any negative. Uh, Can General McInerney prove to you that the mullahs will act in a given way in the future? No. Uh, The same thing. But what we can do, and I think that that Michael Eisenstadt has alluded to that and, and Larry Korb as well, we can look at the historical record, the diplomatic trajectory, and the history of the uh, clerical regime to see whether there's any evidence that they would be at all inclined to, say, launch an uh, unprovoked nuclear first strike against Israel or the United States uh, or even a surefire uh, suicidal war against Israel, for example. And in a sense, and this is probably a controversial statement, I don't think we give them all as enough credit. Uh, They have played a pretty sophisticated game over the years, particularly since 9-11. They saw the writing on the wall going into Afghanistan and bent over backwards to demonstrate that they were on board with Operation Enduring Freedom. And by and large, they were. Uh, For a time, in fact, when uh, Khatami was president and the Iranians were scared to death that they were next, it was us who rebuffed their offer for talks twice, as we alluded to on the first panel. Uh, So we don't know what negotiations could yield uh, because we don't talk to them, Uh, and that, I think, is a policy that the first panel has adequately described needs to be reevaluated. But I bring up this digression because I think it fits into a larger narrative um, that I think needs to be deflated here in town, that the Iranians are just intractable folks and there's no sense in talking to them. I think their behavior indicates quite the opposite. Uh, When they were scared, they tried to get a deal. Uh, That's rational behavior. These people are not Osama bin Laden. They advance their position as much as they can. Occasionally, they act in very risky ways and engage in brinkmanship, uh, but they're not a death cult. And I think also it's important to point out that if you took Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as the unitary sort of Stalin-esque leader of the Iranian state, you would have a very different picture from the reality on the ground. Um, I think that if you look at what is going on, the real decision maker inside of Iran is the aptly enough named supreme leader, uh, Mr. Khamenei. So I think we need to look at his behavior uh, and, and, and history rather than taking statements uh, by the president uh, as entrenched policy. And that leaves us with the decision I think we're going to be facing sooner or later, and I fear that it's going to be the decision that we're going to end up with, which is the bomb or don't bomb question. Uh, it's a complicated topic, but I want to touch on a number of aspects of a preventive strike that I think would doom us to failure uh, if we were to go down that road. And the first, as we've already alluded to, is the apparent state of U.S. intelligence on Iran. Um, as it was discussed during the first panel, it's exceedingly difficult to gather intelligence on a country in which you, with which you have not had diplomatic relations for 27 years, And a 2004 presidential uh, commission concluded that we have, quote, disturbingly little information on the Iranian nuclear program. There's the report in James Risen of the New York Times book that in 2004, uh, a CIA agent accidentally sent a roster of all the human assets inside of Iran to an Iranian double agent. So a great deal of the evidence that we have indicates that we're largely flying blind in terms of intelligence. Uh, we definitely get dribs and drabs from people uh, like the MEK, the mujahideen kalk as we did in 2002. But along with those dribs and drabs come a lot of bogus information that could wind up having you bombing everything from Tabriz to Yazd. And I think unless you have a pretty complete intelligence picture of the stuff you do need to hit, Um, A counter-proliferation policy enacted via airstrikes is going to have a fairly negative outcome. I mean I think we can learn a big lesson from what happened in July with respect to uh, Israel and Hezbollah. And it's important to keep in mind that the intelligence that the Israelis had on on Hezbollah in Lebanon is I think by any measure vastly superior to that which we have on Iran – Second, I think you have the question of how Iran responds. Uh, the first priority is that we've got hundreds of miles of supply lines running through uh, Shi'istan and southern Iraq. And while I think that the Iraqi Shias' degree of fealty uh, to Iran can certainly be overstated, they are going to be really deeply disturbed when their co religionists in Iran are getting attacked by the United States. Uh, that would be three wars against Islamic countries in the past six or so years. And with respect to those supply lines, we've got foreign civilians by and large driving those supply trucks, Sri Lankans, Pakistanis, and they're basically doing it because we pay well. Uh, you start coming under regular mortar fire in those things, and I think that they are going to have a fundamental uh, recalculation as to what their, uh, what their economic considerations are compared to their uh, the, the safety of their lives. And there's just no possible way to make up via airdrop or any other way the logistics concerns that are coming through southern Iraq. And I think this is one of the reasons that when you talk to army folks about this in a lot of cases and you start spinning out these hypothetical scenarios after attacking Iran, their eyes go like pie plates because they realize that there's a disconnect between what people are going to be seeing from 30,000 feet and what people are going to be seeing on the ground. And there's a quote from General McCaffrey uh, who said – Uh, The notion that we can threaten Iran with conventional air attack is simply insane. So I think when you hear distinguished military personnel uh, talking like that, you should definitely raise an eyebrow at the very least – Um, I think the threats to the uh, Strait of Hormuz can also be overstated, at least in the long term. But in the short term, there are a lot of people smarter than me who are talking about oil way above $100 a barrel, which I don't think should be a debate stopper, uh, but I think definitely needs to be taken into account in the context of this discussion. You're going to have the extremely nasty prospect of a minefield in the Strait of Hormuz, and there's just not a lot you can do to mitigate against that. We've taken measures uh, since the last uh, incident of mines in in the Gulf, but there's not a lot, gee whiz, technology-wise that you can do to mitigate against that. So at the very least, you have the prospect of skyrocketing insurance rates on oil tankers steaming through the strait. And in the worst case, you have the prospect of possibly naval vessels ending up uh, like the Cole, the Roberts, the Tripoli, or the Princeton. So I think that's another thing that needs to be taken into account. Moreover, there's the question of Hezbollah. Everybody's familiar with Richard Armitage's quip about maybe Al-Qaeda is really the B team of international terror and Hezbollah is the A team. uh, But I think we really need to think this through. If we attack them, do we get a replay of July but on steroids? Does does Hezbollah escalate? Um, And more importantly, are there Hezbollah people inside the United States? There's been very little discussion of that, I think, in this context. And it's these kind of concerns that bring to what I think is the real ultimate worry about the airstrikes option, and that's that you're going to get a spiral of escalation that's very probably going to lead to regime change in Tehran and all the mess that's going to bring. Um, We shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that the Iranians don't have layers upon layers of contingency plans about levels of escalation. Um, And when they retaliate, it's going to hurt us, and it's going to hurt us bad. And naturally enough, our response is going to be to strike back in a way that is intended to hurt them worse. And then they will get to go again, and the spiral will proceed. It's all going to be, I think, a fairly nasty business, and the Iranians and us are both going to continue to try to raise the costs of further escalation uh, to the point that the other side is afraid of doing so. Um, But I fear that that's not going to work, that neither side's fear of escalation is going to prevail, and that you're going to end up with eventually regime change in Tehran. Um, And at that point, you're going to have an Iraq-style situation on the ground in Iran. We hear a lot about the uh, uh, great... Fissures inside of Iran, and that's absolutely accurate. The problem becomes who takes power inside of Iran, as we've learned in Iraq. So I think that contingency needs to be taken up as well. Um, So I think these types of questions need to be answered by the advocates of bombing now. Uh, No more Vanity Fair articles. No more cakewalk. I think these questions need to be taken up today. Um, And the last problem with this whole strategy of limited airstrikes in the first place. I think it's one thing to advocate a policy as General McInerney has of coming in and aiming at regime change. Um, But it's another thing entirely to think that you can just contain the war to our bombing their nuclear facilities. Uh, But the argument that a lot of folks are making in town is that that it is very much centered on delaying the Iranian nuclear program so that in the interim we can engineer some type of regime change that will cause a more acceptable regime to come to power. Power. The problem with that sort of complicated systematic argument is people don't like to have their countries bombed, and I think that the effect of that is going to be to shore up, not undermine the uh, the Mullah's position inside of Iran. So if the plan is – Bomb in order to delay, during the delay that you have purchased, engineer regime change so that even if they get nuclear weapons, they will be a friendly country, or in the optimal scenario, they won't get nuclear weapons. If you don't end up getting that regime change in the interim, then the whole impetus for the airstrikes in the first place uh, falls apart. If the deal – In closing, I'll just actually – let me skip to the closing here. Um, I want to take a few moments to admit to the deep dangers of my preferred policy uh, as Michael Eisenstadt has just to demonstrate that I don't think that this is going to be easy or preferable uh, or any such thing. I think that deterring a newly nuclear Iran would be a dreadfully dangerous game, Uh, and I think that even under the best circumstances, it is going to make things noticeably worse in the Middle East. Uh, I was in the office yesterday preparing these remarks, and right over the wires, as if on cue, comes the wire report, Arab States Study Shared Nuclear Program. Now, mind you, this was a peaceful program, of course, uh, but you get the idea of the the, the pressures for proliferation that come here. There's going to be profound pressure to develop a Sunni bomb, and I think that given AQ Khan, (coughs) given even the Indian nuclear deal, and given the prospect of an Iranian bomb, we need to look very seriously at the question of whether the NPT is on life support or whether it is already dead. Uh, That's a digression too far for today, but I think that this is going to really shed some light on the difficulties of proliferation in the future. Uh, As Michael Eisenstadt has also pointed out, I think it's important to acknowledge that newly nuclear countries are uh, the most reckless nuclear actors in, in the international arena, and it's not just cargo. We can remember in our own history that we contemplated using nuclear weapons against China, against the Soviets, and even in Korea. And there's no reason to believe that that Iran would be any different. So I think that that is a a very real prospect that we need to uh, deal with. And it's possible that even if you start really seriously doing the work of deterrence, if you start drawing believable red lines, if you increase Israeli-Iranian communication, if you increase U.S.-Iranian communication, you're still going to have the prospect of another July war out there, but even nastier this time. The Iranians are not pursuing a bomb for nothing, and once the destruction is mutually assured in the short term, uh, they're probably going to start thinking about the ways in which that frees their hand. Um, I was struck by a piece reading back through the old uh, discussion Discussions of this issue from Stephen J. Rosenbach way back in 1975, looking at the prospect of an Egyptian bomb and uh, worrying that the more believable your red lines are, the more willing you are to have limited wars because once escalation starts, you know where to stop. So I think that a nuclear Iran would take an already messy Middle East and make it noticeably worse. But I think that that outcome is less bad for our country than getting an Iraq-plus-style outcome on the ground inside of Iran. We look at where we are in Iraq today, and unfortunately, that could seem like a dream scenario if we go down the road to war with Iran. And I hope that the folks on the first panel start getting calls from the White House uh, soon, because if they don't, uh, I'm afraid that that is very much where we could end up. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Justin. I had to do absolutely nothing on that panel. If you noticed, I didn't have to pass a single note. And that means that the speakers have allowed us uh, at least half an hour for questions, and and I would like to entertain those now. We have uh, just a few basic ground rules. I'm sure you've heard them before. Uh, Wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself uh, and your affiliation, if applicable, and please uh, keep your questions short so that we can entertain uh, as as many as possible. Um, uh, Let's see. I have one right down here in the front, please. Ken
2: Dillons, Spectrum Bioscience, uh, for any of the panelists. Uh, what happens if the United States decides not to attack Iran and the Israelis get tired of waiting and they decide that they're going to attack Iran? Uh, and we happen, you know, there are two possibilities. We happen to find out beforehand. Should we try to stop them or should we say go right ahead? You know, it's your decision. Or we might not find out and they might attack which is something maybe we should have thought of beforehand, could you discuss that scenario a little bit,
0: please? Thank you. Uh, who wants to say that? Word? Larry, go ahead. Fools rush in.
2: We're angels. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I think if we find out ahead of time, and that's not our policy, we need to make it clear to them that we, you know, we disapprove and we have certain levers in terms of the uh, – uh, military assistance that we give them uh, give, give them each year, because I think if the Israelis do it, whether in fact we 've objected we 're going to get the blame, and then all of the things that we 've spoken about uh, here we 're going to have to uh, going to have to live with it. I mean should they do it without us and against the wishes of uh, you know the McCain administration, the Bush administration, or whoever you know uh, running run, run the country, then I think we have to make it clear that denounce the, you know, denounce, denounce the attack. So, I mean, that's what you, you know, you, you, I mean, those are the options that you're, 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 you're left with. But I have no doubt that if they do it, even if we say, no, we're opposed to it, you know, publicly, we won't be believed uh, in, the, uh, in the Arab and Muslim world. Go ahead,
3: Mike. If I could just add something to that. I, I think there also would have to be some kind of uh, constructive component. That I mean, you know, fr- from the Israeli perspective, if you know they're facing annihilation or survival, and you're saying, "Well, we won't," you know, we won't provide you know foreign military assistance next year. They'll say, "Well, fine." <laughs> you know, that's it's, it's 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 you know. So there has to be, I think. A, um, a, a positive, you know, constructive component that, you know, how, you know, how are we going to engage together with the the Israelis um, in order to ensure that um, deterrence uh, works uh, vis-a-vis uh, Tehran? So, and I don't have particular, you know, any particular ideas at this, you know, on this at this time, but there has, you know, whether it's extended deterrence or, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, agreement in, in those terms, um, yeah, I think there has to be a positive component as well. That's all I just want to add. Justin. I-
4: I agree. I think it reflects the importance of uh, bringing together, bringing in line the U.S. and Israeli understanding on this issue. And I think that there's a lot of work left to be done. Um, I think the Israelis have taken a lot of prudent steps uh, up to this point. They have uh, done very much to get nuclear submarines. Uh, they've bolstered their, their second strike capabilities both on land and underwater. I think that's an eminently prudent step, and that needs to be uh, uh, vigorously supported. But I think the danger of uh, keeping the understandings of this issue different between the Israelis and the United States is that, as Michael's pointed out, I think exactly right, any responsible Israeli policy. Maker who believed that the Iranian bomb meant the annihilation of Israel would not be concerned about military assistance, etc. And I think they would be uh, very much inclined to do what they could to stop it. The other problem is that we happen at this point to own the most probable airspace that they would use for attempting to do that, uh, which would implicate us in the first place as having provided the airspace. And I think, you know, you get down to these sort of absurd scenarios where we've told the Israelis, no, 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 please don't do that. They take off anyway, we're not going to shoot down Israeli aircraft that are flying over Iraqi airspace. So this is, this is a, a very serious problem in terms of what I think is a gulf of, uh, of uh, difference between the two countries' understanding of this issue, and I think that, uh, that it's a serious problem.
1: Let me just say something. Uh, first of all, Israelis can't do a very good job on it. Uh, I gave you 1,500 aim points, and they may be able to get 50, uh, and they shouldn't have to do it. Uh, But I guarantee you they may – it it reminds me about 1938, if you want to do deja vu, that a lot of you are sitting here and have great, as our speakers do, great reasons why we should not act against Hitler. They were great reasons, remember. It only cost us 60 million people. Uh, The fact is, is uh, the United States should do that and the United States should be very clear, and I think some of the speakers misunderstood what I said, you have the covert action so the Iranian people change the regime. There are risks with that. But you get the Iranian people involved, and and the kickoff of the airstrike, you could do it covertly without it. But the fact is there are a lot of reasons to do that uh, with, with an airstrike and to send that signal. But many of you are hoping... Uh despite what Larry says, Kim Jong uh, – Kim Il-sung or not uh,
2: – Mao Zedong,
1: Ma, Mao Zedong uh, said – did not say that soon there will be a world without the United States. Uh, China was not a rogue regime. China was part of the United Nations. We have already been attacked by Islamic extremists. That is the issue. You can put different nations behind them. It is Islamic extremism. That number, whatever it is, is it 10 people, is it 1 million, has a global nature, a a directive, a guidance for it. So uh, the issue of... Would you know where the nuclear weapons came from? Well, I hope nobody thinks that Iran is going to fire nuclear weapons. They're going to be in rider trucks, and Hezbollah or someone will take credit for it. So there will not be fingerprints. And for those that say, well, we'll decimate Iran, well, I'm not sure we will, unless we have a declared policy. That is another speech in which we need to declare policies against people that are building nuclear weapons and supporting terrorism that nexus is the dangerous one but i think that everybody wants israel to bail us out on this we are the ones that have the responsibility we can either be in denial hope you can do this these are nice people they don't really mean it or you confess up to what the challenge is and and that is the problem uh, and i think that's where it's a good debate i think it's a very fair debate and unfortunately, if five nukes go off in the U.S. cities, then the debate is over. But you've got 5 to 10 million dead people, then what do you do? Because they're not fingerprints. And despite all those people saying the forensics will know shortly, well, how about if they're weapons that were sold from the Soviet Union? Just like the anthrax. Yeah, there are fingerprints in, those, in that anthrax we had here. Can someone tell me where it came from? So the fact is, uh, that is the danger when we are dealing with people like this. And there is a lot of risk. There's risk on
0: both sides. But don't make Israel do it. Um, Michael, if I can take my uh, chair's prerogative, Michael mentioned DITRA's uh, attribution program, and General McInerney alludes to this issue of fingerprinting. Does either Larry or, or Justin I want to weigh in on this issue as, is should the declared policy be... A detonation, regardless of the the source, or once we have uh, confirmation of the source of that weapon, should should that be part of a deterrence uh, uh, and containment?
4: policy? I, I think you're already seeing steps in that direction, in particular on the ground in Israel. There are members of the uh, the Knesset who are talking very much about uh, looking at the launch of a missile, any missile, from Iran as being presumed uh, to be a nuclear device and that Israel will respond in kind. I, I don't mean to, to portray deterrence as some sort of a Push-button policy. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of line drawing. And I think that the general McInerney aptly and importantly raises up the the, the importance of uh, uh, post so of, of Russian nuclear capabilities. But I don't think that gives a, that takes us to the point where we say to ourselves that we have been attacked by Islamic fundamentalists. Iran is an Islamic fundamentalist as well, and therefore we should preventively uh, attack their nuclear program. I think we need to be very much more careful about drawing lines and drawing distinctions between groups like al-Qaeda and nation-states like Iran. And I think, again, we need to look in the history of the Islamic Republic, in the history of Ayatollah Khomeini. We need to look at evidence of irrationality, or look for some indication of irrationality. But I think that by very much focusing on the public statements of Mr. Ahmadinejad, we're missing in a lot of ways what's really going on inside the decision-making process surrounding the supreme leader inside of Iran. I think, yeah, we need to make it clear that if, uh, you know, you would give this bomb of the
2: technology to someone, we would hold you responsible. But I think in terms of a terrorist group getting one, I mean, I'm much more concerned about the loose nuke uh, problem in the Soviet Union. I mean, and that's why, I mean, it's amazing after 2001, we cut the, you know, we cut the money for the cooperative threat reduction program uh, uh, in, uh, in, in half. And again, if you look at the Iranian behavior, they don't give Hezbollah the top of the line uh, weapons. Anytime you would give a nuclear weapon or technology to someone, you lose control of it. You don't know what they're going to do. They could use, you turn it against, uh, against you. Now, obviously, there's no risk-free thing. But let me tell you something. I really resent when people start comparing today's leaders to Hitler, okay? Ahmadinejad, I mean, Hitler, the, Hitler le- was in charge of a country that was a world superpower at the time, okay? And the idea that this person who doesn't even run the country, okay, a small country that is certainly not a superpower, is just like Hitler, I think, you know, it demeans Hitler and and elevates uh, him. And I think, you know, when we go around doing those type of things, we tend to overreact. Remember who started the Iranian nuclear program? The Shah did when we were supporting him. So don't – this idea that somehow these Islamo – whatever, you know, fascists or you know these terrible terms that people use come in and say, see, they they started it. No, in fact the Ayatollah stopped it. It gets going again when we put them on the axis of evil, okay, after they helped us in Afghanistan. And, you know, if I give a personal thing, when I was working at the Council on Foreign Relations back in uh, 2001, the Iranians have an embassy in New York, and they must have thought the council really has the power that people <laughs> attribute to it. And so I got invited over with a couple of my colleagues one night to the Iranian embassy in October 2001. Said so we want you to send a message to your government. We're going to help you in Afghanistan, okay? We we are concerned as well, okay? And as already been alluded to here at, after we went into Iraq in the, 2003, they wanted to continue the negotiations. And we said no, we're not going to talk to you. That would legitimize uh, that would le- legitimize you. So I think it's important that – are the Iranians going to act for their self-interest? Of course they are. Every nation does, Okay, Nations don't have permanent friends or enemies. They have permanent interests. And what you have to figure out is what are those interests, what do they have, and what do – you know, what what are our interests? And then finally, you know, it's – this idea of preventive war. Preventive war would set up a whole new standard of international behavior. We're not talking about preemption where you've got a clear and present danger. If you had information they were about to attack, yes, you could do something. But once you inscribe this doctrine of preventive war, which we've done in Iraq, what's to keep India from going after Pakistan? For example, in terms of a, a country that has nuclear weapons is unstable and supports, you know, uh, terrorism has already been alluded to, alluded to here. So I think you have to be very, very careful when you start throwing these things around because it's not just this problem; it's the whole st- way in which international policy is conducted.
3: Michael, Larry, I'm, I'm not comfort, I'm not reassured by by. Your, your comments about uh, Iran being a small country, because uh, uh, nuclear weapons in the hand of the current regime—let's let's not under-underrate the potential for for problems that could cause. And, and we're we're living in a different era. The idea of you know World War II, 60 million people dying, you know, you know, we lost 2,000, you know, 3,000 people, excuse me, after 9/11, and that was a national, a traumatic event for our nation. So we're living in a different time um, with regard to their nuclear program. Let's also, you know, for, for the record, um, from what we know now, it's, it was it was reactivated in the mid 1980s. We don't know the reason, but I, it's probably due to operational pressures related to the Iran-Iraq War, and you know, access, long predated access of Evil. With regard to Ditra, um, the, a, a lot of a lot of what we know about that program, well, there's very little that we know about that program, and for good reason, and it, it should stay that way. <laughs> um, and I think the ambiguity about our technical capabilities is, is, is something that we want to preserve. Um, I, I would say, however, and, and we should also understand that, that you know, very often tec- technical um, assessments are not unambiguous. Uh, we've known this from, from, from other episodes with Iran's, Iraq's nuclear program in the 90s. But, if we look back at our history with Iranian terrorism, I think we 've done a pretty good job at detecting Iranian fingerprints on acts of terror, whether it be the marine barracks bombing, the attacks on our embassies in in, in Beirut and Kuwait, um, as well as uh, Hobart towers so I, I think that combined with you know post attack forensics related to you know isotopic fingerprinting as well as all the full array of intelligence capabilities that we have we 'd probably figure it out um, and the question is then you know um, after a year or so, you know, can we justify retali- massive retaliation after, after you know, I-, I think even after a year after a
0: nuclear attack, the blood will still be running hot. So, Ken, that's a good question, judging from the responses we got from it. Uh, uh, down here again.
1: Uh, my name is Larry Rage. I don't have any affiliation. Uh, from uh, from the point of view of the size of the Marine Corps and the Army and the level of it stretched now, uh, and actually I, I'm a retired Army reservist, so uh, just uh, can, can you comment on that uh,
5: relative uh, – adding this scenario to other scenarios around the world, how would you judge the strength of the Marine Corps and the Army?
3: I'll just say I don't think the army or marines have a, a role to play in scenarios related to Iran by, by and large. I will say, though, to paraphrase um, General Shinseki, we, we've got uh, a 15-division foreign policy with a 10-division army. We need to have a, a larger larger military. We, we've been living on the razor's edge. We're lucky that we haven't had a crisis in Korea. Um, but I, I don't know how, how we deal with it. And if we can't sustain a presence of 140,000 troops overseas in, in a combat zone, we're, we're in big trouble as a superpower. I mean, for those of us who want the United States to play you know, an assertive role overseas, and not everybody might agree with that. But I, I think we need a bigger army. The, the way ahead is not a draft. National service law, you get a choice. Peace Corps, America Corps, or military service, that way the military gets the people who would have volunteered anyhow for the military, plus an, that, an, an additional increment of people who say, If I have to serve, you know, I'd rather not do Peace Corps and America Corps. I want to do, you know, the military route. So that's one potential solution.
2: If you – look, if you want to carry out the Bush foreign policy, you can't do it on a volunteer basis for the Army, all right? Let's be honest about it because if you take a look at last year, yes, the Army met its recruiting goal, okay, 80,000. They took in 18 percent non-high school graduates, Right? You should only be taking in 3 or 4% at the, at the most. I can tell you from personal experience, and if you've been in the Army Reserve, you know what I'm talking about. Only 60% of the people scored average or above average on the Armed Forces Qualification Test. Now, when DOD releases the figures, they amalgamate all the services. The Air Force and Navy are doing well. In fact, they're cutting down the number of people. But here's the, uh, the bad statistic. One out of every five recruits even with those lower standards, increasing the age, got a waiver to come in. And according to General McCaffrey, and he spoke to the Military Officers Association, 7,000 of those waivers were for moral or criminal reasons, okay? So that's the problem. If you want to expand it, Michael's right, if you want to expand it, you can't do it on a volunteer basis and maintain anywhere near the quality that uh, that you would like. So I mean, you're gonna if you want to do it. If you at some point if you go in and you bomb uh, Iran, are you just gonna walk away, or are you gonna you know what are you gonna do? Okay, and if you want to send ground forces in there. Uh, you can't do it on a volunteer basis, okay? You know, Michael said, well, it's hard to keep 140000 because it's a volunteer basis and you're only leaving for the year. This is not like World War II where you were in and you, you got drafted and you stayed for the duration. If you want to rotate people, you know, on a year basis, you can't you, – to keep 140000 you need at least triple that number to do it, uh, to do it correctly. Uh, Justin, a word
4: yeah. from our sponsor? No, yeah, no, I just wanted to expand real briefly on, on a point that Larry made. Is that we may not want there to be a role for the Army or the Marine Corps in a post military action Iran, but Events may trans uh, transform what we want into what we need to do. I think that there the, the prospect of regime change, again, the question becomes what follows on? And I think that to the extent that anyone holds the notion that there is a viable government in waiting that can unify the fractious peoples inside of Iran better than uh, uh, groups that were held out as the same in Iraq have been able to do in Iraq is, is – Very much unrealistic. So I think that, again, the prospect of even limited military strikes leading ultimately to regime change yields a whole host of unanswered questions um, that I think we need to look at very seriously. Are the Army and the Marine Corps equipped to occupy Iran? No. If we attack Iran, could they be called on to try to cobble together some kind of a strategy to try to mitigate the damage inside of Iran? It's possible. So I think those sort of nightmare hypotheticals become much more realistic once you get further down teasing these things out. Okay, I want to get
0: a few in the back, uh, and I will come back to the front. Uh, Bob?
5: Yeah, Bob Shatler. I'd like to pursue this discussion and connect it to Michael Eisenstadt's uh, uh interesting discussion of the politics connecting to the military regime um, who we are matters in terms of what our military options are uh, we have not yet been able to find after five years Osama bin Laden that has created the perception that our intelligence is, is a complete shambles it's probably better than it is but the, the domestic and international perception is that it's, it's quite bad Similarly, Genghis Khan would not need an Iraqi study group to pacify Iraq. He would probably announce that he wanted to kill all 25 million Iraqis, but he would just kill 5 million, for starters, to see what happened. So it, it seems odd to say we don't want to take the military option off the table when we've, in a post-Iraq period... Uh, a post-November election period. The Iraqi study group is kind of trying to work its way. General Shinseki is notable because he was one of the few people that spoke up. I want to ask in terms of politics whether a Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, and our current military active leadership at the top would in fact allow for given the domestic, considerate political situation, a military option that we've been discussing.
0: It seems to me it's off the table. Okay. Off the table for political reasons? General McInerney? Let's just go Actually, Michael raised this point, so I'll give General McInerney, Larry, and Justin a...
1: a well, there's a, no question you're, you're pointing out it's very difficult to do a military operation uh, against Iran right now, uh, which makes them, emboldens them because they think politically... Uh, we don't have the will uh, I disagree with with the gentleman uh, on the size of the army and that the army could probably get larger uh, if there was more will behind it uh, The fact is is we have underfunded defense uh, I mean we're sitting here somewhere between three point six and four percent the when I came in in uh, fifty nine we we're eleven point five percent and uh, Kennedy had it up, most of Kennedy's time was probably 9, 9.5 to 10 percent. Uh, and we're sitting, as I say, between 3.6 and 4 percent. We've got an aging force. So we do need to modernize. Now, I do believe politically it will be difficult to do that. Um, but the, the problem is, again, I think that if you uh, – it doesn't take many mullahs to have the wrong – sight picture, and say that we're going to put nuclear weapons in their cities through proxies. And and then, then it's too late. The fact is, is uh, my effort and my desire is to have the Iranian people to take their country back. Now, you can say, well, they couldn't do that. And uh, I could say they did it. When they got rid of the Shah, and unfortunately I think everybody attributes bad things to the Shah. That was the single most – the worst mistake we made in the last half of the 20th century to put an Islamic extremist regime in Iran and the Shah. I was there in uh, 77, and, and I can assure you uh, the world would be different if the Shah was still there. But the fact is, is it will be difficult politically. I understand that. They understand that, which emboldens them. Look, the latest IEDs and the efforts that they're doing in Iraq today, there'll be no peace in Iraq as long as Iran is keeping it uh, unstabilized. The new IEDs that they're bringing in that you don't get the main people anymore, it kills all four or five in the vehicles. I read every day the casualty reports, and that's because – the Iranians are giving more powerful weapons because they don't think we have options. I believe we have options. Doesn't necessarily have to be a, uh, as I say an airstrike. I believe that that does it in a way that galvanizes the Iranian people. But the fact is, to believe you can contain them, I think is is we're going to be proven wrong because of their terrorist. And nuclear weapons. This is a different issue than we have ever faced before. And for those that believe in death, uh, they are not in the same logic train than we are. Uh,
0: Larry, do you want? To well, I, I guess politics the of it?
2: question there about, <clears throat> look, the administration has no credibility because they misled the country. I think Frank Rich put it pretty well. They lied about getting us into Iraq. On,
1: Larry. That, that look. The CIA, everybody said it. You have not listened or read the 2,000 hours of Saddam tapes. Has anybody here read the 2,000 hours of Saddam tapes? And, and all I'm saying is for, for you to say something irresponsible, that the administration lied, uh, is, is unprofessional. You, no, you sound like said, a lightweight when no, you say no. that.
2: Now, wait a second. All right. I don't think we need to debate that. But the fact of the matter is there was information there that disproved their case, and they didn't tell us about it. Now, you can call it whatever you want, okay? But the fact of the matter is they have no credibility, and that's the problem that you have when you got real threats, okay, that that gentleman was, was, was alluding to. And Don Rumsfeld said, we know where they are. That was an outright lie because he didn't know where they were, okay? And so when you say that, Look, you can Don
1: Rumsfeld, up. the president, take what the, the agency says. They, they don't make these different
0: so, things So oh, Okay, if, I can, if right. I can weigh in on this. Uh, okay. So the, the agency, I think uh, Justin I know alludes to this in his paper. He alluded to it in his presentation as well. The agency on, upon which the president of the United States and the, and the secretary of defense depend for making policy judgments aired in Iraq. Is that what you're saying, General McInerney? everybody told us the russians okay. told okay us. so so now, why then is there the question, more credibility they, with respect to iran
1: did, did they
0: uh, well that's a good question but yeah, did that they is a good did, question. They, did
1: they no no but but <laughs> they, but did they err? you see that's why i say uh, the issue was they were developing they had technology they had people the real question is where did they go and or uh, did the uh, uh, U.N. inspectors, UNSCOM, and that get them all out? Now, now, that's the debate, and all I'm saying is until you, until Larry, until everyone here has read the 2,000 hours of tapes and why Prima Kauf and the two three-stars went in there in the September to, de- uh, uh, to December time frame of 2002, until you have those answers, I think it's irresponsible to say that the administration lied okay. because, look, Kerry said they were there. Kennedy said they were there. They all
3: uh, – right. Clinton said they were there. Oh, Mike, Mike do you want to – I just to, – to the question, um, I read, I read Gates' uh, transcript, and it was very clear. He was very uncomfortable. He was asked, you know, would he support preventive action, and it was very clear. He said – only as a last, absolute last resort, he made great. He went to great pains to make that point. So it's very clear that uh, that I think he's he's a he's a reluctant warrior, a warrior on this
0: issue. Okay, I've, we have time. I, I had a hand down here in the front. I have time for one more question, uh, and uh, we'll take that. In the meantime, I'm I'm planning out my my holiday vacation for reading the 2,000 hours of Saddam yeah. tape, So that's <laughs> going to keep me very busy.
1: <clears throat> I'm at a Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. And I'd like to know who translated those tapes out of Arabic. English. <laughs> but setting that aside, I have a question for uh, Justin Logan. Uh, I'm, I'm baffled by your reference to a concern that a nuclear Iran might provoke the creation of a Sunni bomb among its neighbors.
2: Setting aside for a moment my deep uh, concerns and, 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 and doubts about attributing religious denominations to nuclear weapons, but adopting your terminology, is it not the case that Iran already is surrounded
1: by neighbors who have a sunni bomb a hindu bomb a jewish bomb and an orthodox bomb
4: no you're absolutely right and i use sort of a, a shorthand that does not aptly sum up pakistan comes to mind when I mean, you're talking about sunni bomb what i meant to respond what i meant to describe was the obvious and deep tension between uh the persian state and the arab state centered around saudi arabia and also the gcc country so that was a crude shorthand thank you for correcting me <laughs>
0: He stands corrected. All right. Well, with that, thank you all very much for coming, and join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you. Applause. For my-